Criminology is a true crime podcast that may contain discussion about violent or disturbing topics. Listener discretion is advised. everyone and welcome to episode 100 of the criminology podcast i'm mike ferguson and this is mike morford mr morford how are you i'm doing good i'm excited episode 100 yeah it's kind of hard to believe i mean if you look back over the years look at the start zodiac look at that whole kind of long season and then we jumped into the golden state killer it seems like a lifetime ago yeah, we had four total seasons of, of episodes, um, and then we had breaks in between. So I think had we not had breaks in between all those seasons, we might have, what, 150 episodes out, do you think? Yeah, we, we would definitely have a lot more episodes today had we done it that way. But it's a big milestone, no doubt, getting to 100. I mean, just think about the first 99 episodes and the work that went into all of that, it's a number of years and it's a lot of, it was a lot of work. So we're kind of celebrating that. Yeah. It's, it's kind of cool to look back and realize that you've done that many episodes because it sort of creeps along. And then all of a sudden you look back and you're like, Whoa, where'd that time go? All right. So we had some new Patreon supporters. So let's give some shout outs. We had Ali Pettit, David Holm, Gina, Ann, Sarah Mascaratolo, Doug Kaplan, and Ryan Garvey. So some amazing new support, Morph, and we always appreciate that. Yeah, awesome. Thanks for all of that support, every everyone that did support us and uh, everyone that continues to support us. And anyone out there that's on the fence, if you'd like to support us on Patreon, you can do so by visiting patreon.com slash criminology. And speaking of milestones, we're also happy to announce that our Facebook discussion group, Criminology Podcast Discussion and Fans, just passed 5,000 members, which is pretty cool. And to celebrate that, Mike and I are going to do some sort of Facebook Live Q&A or just some kind of random talk, whatever we decide to do. Uh, If you're in our little group of Facebook supporters there, thank you so much for, for supporting us and joining and anyone else that's hasn't done so if you want to come on over we'd be happy to have you and we'll finalize some details on when we do that facebook live and we'll let you know all right buddy it's time to get into this 100th episode of criminology and we've got something really good picked out not just one but two cases that some people believe might be related so we're talking about the disappearance of ray gricar a center county pennsylvania district attorney and the murder of Jonathan Luna, an assistant United States attorney in Baltimore, Maryland, who was found dead in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. So we're talking about two quiet rural type areas in central Pennsylvania. That's really what connects these two cases, at least on the surface. Both of these cases are unsolved. And both have continued to baffle investigators for years. 
So you have separate questions in each case. Obviously, that is who committed these murders. But then you have kind of this overarching question, which is, are these two cases related? Ray Ricard was born on October 9th, 1945 in Cleveland, Ohio. He graduated from Cleveland's Case Western Reserve University of Law with a Juris Doctor degree, the highest education available in the legal profession. And more, I don't know if you're familiar with Case Western, but a very highly regarded university, especially when it, you know, when it comes to law. Yeah, there's no doubt. He had some very good academic credentials. And he actually began his career as the district attorney for Cuyahoga County in Ohio, your neck of the woods. Ray left Cleveland in 1979 when his first wife was hired as a professor at Pennsylvania State University and State College. During their first year in Pennsylvania, Ray was a stay-at-home dad to their adopted daughter, Laura. But then a position opened up under District Attorney David E. Grine, and Ray Ricard was the best man for the job. In 1985, he won District Attorney in an election and eagerly started the job with an eye on tackling any cases that came his way. Ray had an eye for detail, and this was extremely helpful to him in his career as a prosecutor. It helped him secure convictions in some pretty major cases, like the March 1993 murder of Don Marie Birnbaum. She was a 17-year-old runaway from the Elan School, a home for runaway and troubled teenagers in Poland Spring, Maine. Her body was found in a snowbank off Route 550 and Route 26 in Center County, Pennsylvania. This was near the Milesburg exit off I-80. Ray used DNA, gas receipts, and tire tracks to link Don's murder to a cross-country truck driver named James Robert Cruz Jr. At the time, Cruz was 36 years old and worked for New Century Trucking Company out of Waterford, Ohio. Cruz was married with three children and had a fourth on the way. Cruz made the mistake of dumping Don's body in the same county where Ray worked. And I say mistake, Morph, because Ray was relentless in solving Don's murder. Those who worked with Ray described him as a friendly but private person who never talked openly about his private life. By spring 2005, Ray had been married and divorced twice and was in a relationship with Patty Fornicola, who worked as a clerk in the district attorney's office. Ray and Patty had been an item for several years, and they were living together in Belafonte, Pennsylvania, a beautiful small town loaded with Victorian architecture. It's also the county seat of Center County. Ray worked hard, but every once in a while he liked to take a day off to get away from the hustle and bustle of his job. Around 11.30 a.m. on Friday, April 15, 2005, Ray called Patty to tell her he was going to play hooky and go for a drive on Route 192 in his red and white Mini Cooper. He was heading to Lewisburg, about 50 miles away. Ray loved his Mini Cooper, and he enjoyed tooling around in it whenever he got the chance. So a 50-mile drive would be something he'd enjoy. When he talked to Patty, Ray told her that he wouldn't make it home in time to feed and walk their dog. So Patty said she would do it. They both said I love you and carried on with their day. According to Patty, there was nothing unusual about the call. During his day off, Ray planned to visit an antique shop in Lewisburg called Street of Shops, 
near the Susquehanna River. It was a beautiful warm day with temperatures in the 60s. Ray often went on spontaneous drives. He once hopped in his car and drove to a Cleveland Indians game without telling anyone. On April 14, 2005, an acquaintance saw Ray at Raystown Lake. This is about 22 miles southwest of Belafonte, Pennsylvania. Patty arrived home from work after 5 p.m. on the 15th, and Ray was not home yet. When Patty didn't find a note, she headed to the local YMCA for a workout, really not thinking a whole lot about it. But when Ray hadn't returned home by 11.30 p.m., Patty called the police. Belafonte Police Department's normal procedure was to wait 24 hours to report a missing adult. However, because of Ray's position as DA, police officers immediately showed up at the home of Police Chief Dwayne Dixon, who right away sent a notice to other police departments to be on the lookout for Ray's red and white Mini Cooper. The following morning, the Pennsylvania State Police joined in the search. And shortly after, they found Ray's Mini Cooper parked in a parking lot across from the street of shops in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania, the town where Ray told Patty on the phone that he was heading to. The car was locked with his cell phone still inside of it. There were no signs of foul play, no blood around or scuff marks on the ground suggesting he was forced into another vehicle. When police started questioning locals and shopkeepers, they caught a break. Witnesses reported seeing Ray and an unidentified woman who may have been with him in the antique shop. Bloodhounds were brought in, but were unable to track its scent. When the Mini Cooper was examined, authorities found cigarette ash on the passenger's side floor mat, and the smell of burning cigarettes lingered in the car. Ray did not smoke, and it was very well known that he hated the smell of cigarettes. He would have never willingly let anyone smoke in his car. So, I think right off the bat, this was an immediate red flag for Ray's loved ones when they heard this news. When the investigators checked Ray's bank accounts and credit cards, there were no unusual clues or purchases, and there was no money missing from his account. And from the time that he vanished, none of his accounts or credit cards were used, and neither was Ray's email. One thing that police did find, was that Ray's work laptop was missing. Now, he rarely used it, and police were quick to point out that they did not believe that his disappearance was in any way related to his job as district attorney. Authorities came out and said that there was no evidence pointing to his disappearance being linked to Ray taking his own life I think more of the reason why this came up was because Ray had a brother, Roy, who in 1996 disappeared under very similar circumstances. Roy Gricar, who was 53, disappeared from Dayton, Ohio on May 8, 1996. At 5.30 p.m. that day, he left his Westchester home in his silver 1991 Toyota Camry to drive to a gas station to purchase some mulch and then pick up his nine-year-old son, Andrew. Andrew alerted other family members when Roy didn't pick him up at a friend's house. Roy had retired from Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in January 1996, 
and had been taking antidepressant medication. He also suffered from severe vision problems, and his family thought he was possibly disoriented when he vanished. Two days later, Roy's locked car was found 20 miles away at Veterans Park in Dayton. His wallet was in the glove compartment, but there was no evidence of Roy's whereabouts or any indication of foul play. On May 18, 1996, Roy Carr's body was found in the Great Miami River. His death was ruled suicide by drowning. Ray Gricar had told a colleague that he never believed his brother's death was a suicide. So, Morph, there's some strange connections here for me personally. I, I think I've mentioned it before, but just in case I haven't, I live in Dayton. So I'm very familiar with not only, you know, Roy's case, but the locations, right, that you just talked about. I used to work in Westchester. My wife works by Wright Patterson Air Force Base. I mean, these are very familiar locations to me. The day that Roy's body was found in the Great Miami River, which I live probably less than a mile from, was the day I got married, May 18th, 1996. Well, that's that's really uh, uh, interesting, that the timing, the locations, the same day you get married. And, and what's interesting about these cases we're talking about today is as close as this one is to you, the next one we're going to talk about later on this episode is right near me. Yeah, when, when we talked about that date, got chills a little bit, man. You know, there's there's some strange connections here, to say the least. Belafonte authorities were aware of Roy Gricar's death. But again, like we talked about, there was no evidence suggesting that Ray had taken his own life as far as anyone knew. He didn't have any mental, personal, or family problems, although his girlfriend, Patty, said that he had been feeling fatigued in the weeks before he disappeared. Now, how many of us that work day in and day out don't feel fatigued to some degree, but Ray was about ready to retire from his job as district attorney at the end of the year, and he and Patty had made some plans to go on some long trips. They were going to see his daughter, Laura, in Seattle. Ray's family did not believe there was any way that he took his own life. Laura said she spoke with her father the night before his disappearance, and she too said no signs of trouble, no signs of distress in that conversation or in any other conversations in the weeks prior. The search continued for Ray Gricar. Divers from Sunbury Fire Department thoroughly searched the Susquehanna River, and a cadaver search dog was brought in from Dauphin County. Authorities from the sheriff's offices in Northumberland and Union Counties also assisted in the search. On April 19, 2005, the case went national when investigators in Ray's case appeared on Fox News' Greta Van Susteren Show. On April 25th, authorities issued a warrant for Ray's medical records, but they didn't find any clues there either. Authorities revealed at that time that three of five sets of fingerprints found on Ray's car belonged to Ray, while the other two sets were never identified. At a April 29th press conference, Police Chief Dwayne Dixon said two people in Wilkesbury insisted that they met a man matching Ray's description on April 18th, 
This was three days after Ray vanished. Dixon didn't say where Ray was seen, but the local media discovered the witness was a bartender who said the mystery man was drinking a Heineken and was talking enthusiastically about the Cleveland Indians. The bartender said Ray was wearing a suit, but it was known that he had left his home in casual clothes. So if this was Ray, he more than likely changed clothes because the sighting happened days after he disappeared, after he left his home wearing casual clothes. By June 2005, more possible sightings of Ray were pouring in. People claimed they had seen him in Maryland, Michigan, Ohio, and Virginia. Of those sightings, authorities were able to rule out all of them, except the Michigan one. In that sighting, a retired Detroit police officer spotted a man at a restaurant on May 27th in Southfield, Michigan. He was dining with a woman in her 70s. The officer thought the man looked familiar, and that night after dinner, he turned on his TV and saw a feature on Ray's disappearance. He recognized Ray as the man in the restaurant. Pennsylvania authorities called it a credible sighting, but still weren't convinced it was Ray. In the Ohio sighting, a woman thought she saw Ray in a grocery store in Columbus around 3 p.m. on June 7, 2005. Ray's nephew, Chris Krakar, lived in the area, and he and his brother Tony reviewed the store's security footage, but could tell by the man's hairline and waistline that it wasn't their uncle, and the sighting was ruled out. So, Morph, I think you have this in a lot of cases, right? Authorities get in reports of sightings from all over the place, different states, some close, some far away, it doesn't surprise me that they took the Michigan sighting as being maybe a little more credible. It was reported by a retired police officer. Police officers, you know, they notice details. They're trained to do that. You know, most of us that are not trained in that way, you know, we kind of go through life. We see people, you know, I, I don't make note of everybody that I see, maybe if somebody's acting suspicious, but I kind of naturally think that police officers are scanning people. <laughs> I mean, I think they, they really notice those type of details more than your average Joe or Jay. Yeah. I think it's in their nature just to be paying attention and looking for details all the time. Yeah. I think it's in their nature. It's in their training. You know, it's what they do. It's also probably in large part about being safe, right? You know, that keeping your head on a swivel thing. Well, very important if you're a police officer. At the end of June 2005, police and Ray's family were getting desperate for answers. Ray's family turned to a psychic profiler named Carla Barron. Carla was 44 years old and a graduate of Carnegie Mellon University Carla believed that Ray Gricar was dead. She said Ray had information about an illegal scheme that threatened the income of some people involved in a criminal network. This took place over a, a period of years. Those people in the network found out that Ray was onto them and they started following him. Carla didn't believe they planned to kidnap Ray on April 15th, but the opportunity presented itself when he was alone in Lewisburg. Carla went on to say that when Ray parked his car 
in the parking lot across from the antique shop, two men in a tan four-door car approached Ray. The driver leaned in to Ray's passenger window and brandished a gun. The man threatened Ray. So Ray went with the two men because he didn't want anything bad to happen to his family. A man in the backseat of the car tied Ray's hands behind his back with zip ties. Carla said the men took Ray to a large warehouse where they often did business. She described the area to police and said that she believed the men killed Ray that night then buried him in a shallow grave near the warehouse where no one would find it. That location was 5 to 15 minutes from where Ray's car was located in Lewisburg. Police worked on the information Carla gave them, but they had no luck in finding Ray. And more if this is interesting, I always find it interesting when we bring in psychics into a case Now, again, this is a self-proclaimed psychic supplying this information to Ray's family and to police. The one thing I will say about it is that the information is very specific. Now, whether you believe in that stuff or not, to provide that type of information, very specific information. Now, it doesn't mean it's real. doesn't mean it's truthful. It's just, to me, it stands out as being very complete and very specific, I guess. Yeah, I think sometimes when we talk about psychics in these cases, their details are very vague, like he's buried along the side of a highway or he's, you know, a a woman's in a body of water someplace. There's, There's not a whole lot of specifics, but she really detailed a lot of stuff here. Yeah, I think that's the one thing that jumped out to me about the information that the psychic gave in this case. Isn't it amazing that we live in a world where you can get anything you need when you need it right to your door? With DoorDash, you can get pretty much anything. And whether you're sick and you don't feel like getting out of the house, DoorDash has you covered. Maybe you're at a party and you run out of alcohol or ice or something like that, but you want to keep that party going. You need a little assist. DoorDash has you covered. Sometimes my wife and I, we just don't feel like making dinner. We're tired. We want to watch a show. That's when we hit DoorDash. DoorDash makes it easy to get the food that you want without all of the hassle. And I'm always amazed when I go on DoorDash by the selection. You know, whether you're in the mood for fast food or something a little fancy, maybe a nice steak. I know around me, they have just about everything. The hardest part for my wife and I is deciding on what we both want. That's the only trouble we ever have. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. Must be 21 and over to order alcohol. Drink responsibly. Alcohol available only in select markets. At the end of July 2005, two fishermen found a laptop under a bridge in the Susquehanna River, just a couple blocks from the parking lot where Ray's car was found. The men turned it over to state police, who determined it was Ray Ricard's missing laptop. It had a Center County government tag on it, but the hard drive was missing. Dive teams searched the river again, but nothing else was found. Police had no idea how long the laptop had been in the water. Police Chief Dwayne Dixon said the water where the laptop was found was about four and a half to five feet deep, shallower than when divers originally searched the river shortly after Ray vanished. The laptop raised a few questions, mainly who took out the hard drive and why. 
Was it Ray or someone else? What was on the hard drive that Ray or another person didn't want authorities to see? Police never found the answers, and that's still a mystery today. That same month in July 2005, Patty Fornicola took and passed a polygraph test. Laura Gricar took one as well and also passed the following September. But police said they were just following procedure. You know, these two women were never considered suspects in Ray's disappearance. At the end of October 2005, the hard drive to Ray's laptop was found in the Susquehanna River in Lewisburg. The problem is it had experienced significant water damage and experts from two different labs were unable to access the files on it. Months went by and then years and investigators still had no clue as to what happened to Ray Gricar. They had a lot of questions, you know, did he leave on his own? Was he murdered or did he take his own life? But I think more of the overall sense was that police and family members believed that Ray was murdered. A rumor floated around that Ray was in the witness protection program, but this was really kind of one of those local rumors. There was really nothing to back it up. One thing that's really interesting and, and just pure luck in this case like finding the needle in the haystack, not once, but twice in this case, is the fact that the fisherman found the laptop the first time and then someone else discovered the hard drive separately. Uh, finding those two different things at separate times just seems uh, like, a, like a small miracle. If you think about the hard drive from a laptop, it's not all that big. So, you know, for somebody to find it in a river or... Now, I don't have all the details of how it was found, but I think you're right. I mean, I think it's kind of incredible that both items were found by fishermen. And the fact that both were found in a body of water would later take on some meaning. In April 2009, authorities revealed they had searched Ray's home computer and found internet searches pertaining to destroying a hard drive. Key phrases used in the online search were how to fry a hard drive, how to wreck a hard drive, and water damage to a notebook computer. In March 2010, a task force was formed after Ray's friends and family, as well as the public, put pressure on police to solve the case. The task force is still around today and meets monthly to review the case. In 2011, several things happened in Ray's case. Authorities in Utah circulated a photo of a John Doe prisoner in order to learn his identity. The authorities there had a man in custody, but they had no idea of who he was. The man bore a striking resemblance to Ray Gricar, but it turned out he was identified by his brother as Philip T. Beavers from New Mexico. It turned out to be another rabbit hole in Ray's case. Ray's daughter, Laura, petitioned the court to have her father legally declared dead so that she could finally settle his estate. Around this time, disgraced Penn State assistant football coach Jerry Sandusky was indicted for sexually assaulting young boys. It was revealed that police investigated an abuse allegation against Sandusky in 1998 and that Ray Gricar decided not to pursue charges. That information had some people wondering, if there was any type of connection between Sandusky and the disappearance of Ray Gricar. 
The problem was there was no evidence to support any type of link. Two years later, in September 2013, a new theory emerged and raised its appearance. The Altoona Mirror published an article reporting a state prison inmate, who was a former Hells Angels member turned police informant, told authorities that another former member of Hells Angels killed Ray in reprisal for a prison sentence. This prison sentence was handed down to another member, who was prosecuted by Ray's office in 1999 for aggravated assault. In a road rage incident, the member split a driver's head open with a baseball bat. Witnesses described the attack as if he was chopping wood. A one-day trial resulted in a conviction and four- to eight-year sentence. The prison inmate said that he had knowledge of Ray's alleged murder because he was a ranking officer in the Hells Angels at the time, but he refused to take authorities to the location of Ray's body for fear of self-incrimination. After police investigated the Hells Angels theory, they said there was about a 1% chance a member of the Hells Angels killed Ray Ricard. In 2014, the Rockview and Lewistown barracks of the Pennsylvania State Police took over the investigation from the Belafonte Police in an effort to shake things up. They were set to take a look at the case with fresh eyes. Central Pennsylvania residents badly wanted Ray Gricar's case solved, and to some of them, Ray's case was reminiscent of another unsolved mystery involving a high-ranking attorney in the area. This was the 2003 murder of a Baltimore assistant United States attorney named Jonathan Luna, whose body was found in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, and just like in Ray's case, there are more questions than answers. Jonathan Paul Luna was born on October 21, 1965, in the Mott Haven section of the Bronx in New York. His father was Filipino and his mother African-American. His father supported the family by working in the restaurant business, while Jonathan's mother stayed home to care for him and his brother. Jonathan graduated in 1988 from Fordham University with a bachelor's degree in communications. Later that year, he attended law school at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, but returned to New York after one semester when his father became seriously ill. A year later, Jonathan went back to UNC and graduated in 1992. Shortly after, he got a job as a clerk for Judge William L. Osteen. While working there, he met Angela Hopkins, a medical student at the University of North Carolina. Angela was in her final year of medical school. Jonathan and Angela were married in 1993 and eventually had two sons together. From 1993 to 1994, Jonathan was an associate at Arnold and Porter Law Firm in Washington. Then in 1994, he went to work in the general counsel's office at the Federal Trade Commission. But Jonathan missed New York, and he often talked about returning. Finally, in 1997, he and Angela moved to Brooklyn, where he worked as a prosecutor in a unit of the Kings County District Attorney's Office that covered Brooklyn Heights, Clinton Hill, Fort Greene, and Red Hook. In 1999, the Lunas moved to Elkridge, Maryland, after Jonathan became a federal prosecutor at the United States Attorney's Office in Baltimore. Jonathan was hired by then-U.S. Attorney for Maryland, Lynn Battaglia. So, you know, if you look at this more, if things looked really positive for Jonathan Luna, both professionally and in his family life. 
Jonathan has been described by friends and colleagues as responsible, charming, and highly intelligent. The U.S. Attorney's Office considered him to be a bright and energetic prosecutor who was well-liked in the office. But after Battaglia was appointed judge with Maryland Court of Appeals in January 2001, Jonathan had problems with her successor, Thomas M. DiBiagio. In 2003, Jonathan thought DiBiagio was going to fire him and hired former federal prosecutor Andrew C. White to represent him. DiBiagio publicly denied Jonathan's job was in trouble, but confirmed it to others in the office. At the end of 2003, Jonathan was prosecuting a 32-year-old Baltimore rapper named Dion Lionel Smith and Walter Poindexter, who was 28 years old. Both men were charged in a five-count indictment with heroin distribution and conspiracy charges. Dion Smith recorded music under the name Poppy Jenkins and was a silent partner in Stash House Records. The men had been arrested in July. The indictment also alleged that Poindexter, who went by the nickname Fella, shot and killed a man named Alvin Jones on January 22, 2001. According to the Baltimore Sun, Poindexter believed that Jones had burglarized one of their stash houses. So in addition to the heroin distribution and conspiracy charges, Poindexter was also charged with murder. The chief witness in the case was Warren Grace, a convicted heroin dealer who was working as a paid FBI informant. But Grace broke the conditions of the informant program when he slipped out of his electronic monitoring device and was caught with heroin in his vehicle. Now, the heroin was unrelated to the case, but obviously that doesn't look good for your star witness. All of that info came out during the trial and Smith and Poindexter's attorneys accused Jonathan Luna of failing to disclose it. By the end of the workday on Wednesday, December 3rd, 2003, after some negotiation, Jonathan and the defense attorneys reached a plea bargain on the drug charges. After work, Jonathan went to his Elk Ridge home, but returned to the office at around 8.40 p.m. to write up the papers on the plea agreement. At 9.06 p.m., he called Poindexter's lawyer to tell him he was still drawing up the paperwork and would fax it over by midnight, but the attorney never received the fax from Jonathan Luna. The next morning, on December 4th, at 5.30 a.m., about 100 miles northeast of Luna's office, a worker at a well-drilling company in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, spotted something red glowing a short distance from the office and turned his car around to investigate. It was very early, and it was still dark outside, but in the path of his headlights, he saw a silver Honda Accord with Maryland license plates. The car was nose down in a small creek with the engine still running. He saw blood smeared on the driver's side door. He also saw a child's car seat in the back. Beneath the car and lying face down in the water was the body of a male. The worker called 911. When police arrived, they examined the scene. The victim was wearing a business suit but there was no identification on him. Money and cell phone attachments were in the car, and a considerable amount of blood was in the back seat. The investigation pressed on. Back in Maryland, 
Jonathan Luna was scheduled to be in court at 9.30 a.m. that morning for the Smith and Poindexter case, but never showed up. Jonathan was always very punctual, so this was highly unusual behavior. Federal agents at the courthouse searched the building, but couldn't find him. Other attorneys entered pleas in Jonathan's absence, and by 11.30 a.m., people were frantically looking for him. Within four hours, authorities linked the body found in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, with Jonathan Luna's disappearance, which had been reported by Jonathan's wife. She had reported Jonathan missing when he failed to come home from work the night before. An autopsy performed by Lancaster County Coroner Dr. Barry Walt revealed Jonathan had been stabbed 36 times with a small knife. Walt found what he called prick marks on Jonathan's body that suggested he may have been tortured before he was killed. Walp also said that Jonathan was alive when he went into the water and that if Jonathan had not been moved to the creek, he would have bled to death. Walp listed stab wounds and drowning as causes of death, and he listed the manner of death as homicide. Jonathan's boss, Thomas DeBaggio, made a bold declaration in regards to Jonathan's murder. He said, we will find who did this, and we are dedicated to bringing the persons responsible for this tragedy to justice. That's a commitment from me. That's a commitment from every law enforcement officer in the state of Maryland. The investigation into Jonathan Luna's death continued, both in Maryland and Pennsylvania. Some people couldn't help but wonder if Jonathan's job as a prosecutor got him killed, specifically the Smith and Poindexter case. But Dion Smith's lawyer said that his client had nothing to do with Jonathan's murder and was cooperating with police. Poindexter was interviewed by the FBI on December 4th, the day Jonathan's body was found. Smith's attorney said that his client was happy with the outcome of the drug case because of the plea bargain Jonathan and the defense attorneys agreed upon. The deal dropped conspiracy counts for both men, which carried a sentence of 25 years to life. Smith was allowed to plead guilty to drug distribution and use of a firearm, which had a potential sentence of 8 to 10 years. Smith's attorney claimed that his client was happy because he got what he wanted in the plea deal. So what would be the point of killing Jonathan Luna? And not only that, but killing a DA does not affect the outcome of a trial. I think it's an important statement to make because it's accurate, right? Okay, you're going to kill a prosecutor, a district attorney. It's not going to stop your case from moving forward, right? They're just going to get somebody else to step in. It's not like they're going to say, well, okay, we have to let you go now. Yeah, that uh, unless he had a personal beef with him directly and just wanted him out of the way for some reason, I agree with you. Well, yeah, me having said that doesn't mean that, you know, one of these individuals may still not have wanted Jonathan dead. It would have had to have been for a different reason than the outcome of the trial, because, you know, like Smith's attorney said, his plea bargain was pretty good. I imagine he was happy with how it turned out. It doesn't mean there still may have been some animosity, and maybe we'll get into it later, on the part of Smith or Poindexter against Jonathan Luna. Investigators began looking into Jonathan Luna's personal and financial life. The FBI claimed they found a credit card that 
Jonathan had that his wife knew nothing about. They also said someone was posting messages using the name Jonathan Luna on a website where people advertised for female sex partners. Okay, that doesn't seem good, but everyone that knew Jonathan Luna vehemently denied that this was a guy who would ever do anything like that. And, and, you know, not to mention that fact, Morph, but, you know, if this guy was to do that, he probably would not have used his real name. We're talking about a very intelligent individual, somebody in a high profile position. It doesn't mean that those guys don't make mistakes or, you know, lose their heads over something. But you would think if this guy's on the web and he's trying to set up some type of sexual tryst, if he's on a website, is he really going to put in his name as Jonathan Luna? You know, it's way too easy to change it. And it you could almost make a case that someone wants to soil his name by putting his name on a site like that. Yeah. Or, you know, maybe that is a person that had dealings with Jonathan Luna. Maybe they didn't go so well. And so they're on this site and they, they said, you know what? I'm going to use this name. So, but again, there are a lot of questions in this case. We've already said that there are a lot of things that don't make sense, but we have to talk about all of them because who knows what's important. Authorities were able to establish Jonathan's final movements before his death. And it would come out that, you know what? They were almost as big of a mystery as who murdered him investigators knew that he was at work at 11:30 PM on December 3rd, because building records showed his silver 1999 Honda was parked in a nearby garage. It's really from this point forward, when things turned somewhat bizarre at 11:38 PM, Jonathan or someone else drove his car out of the parking garage. What investigators found very strange was that Jonathan's eyeglasses and his cell phone were left behind on his desk. So first of all, family and friends said he needed glasses to drive. And what type of person leaves their cell phone behind? Not many of us. And how many attorneys who are in this kind of fast paced lifestyle always in communication with somebody would leave their cell phone behind. It seems out of the ordinary for sure. Yeah. It definitely seems like a red flag. And when you put the two together, right? I see, okay, you forgot your cell phone. It happens to everyone. But when you couple the cell phone and the eyeglasses together, that's where to me, that's more than just an oversight. Something has happened that's not right. After Jonathan Luna's car was driven out of the garage, it was driven south to I-95 and then drove through the Fort McHenry Tunnel heading north. At 12.46 a.m., Jonathan Luna's Easy Pass was used for a toll on I-95 into Delaware. A few minutes later, at 12.57 a.m., he withdrew $200 from an ATM at a rest stop in Newark, Delaware. A surveillance camera at the ATM recorded images which showed Luna standing alone in front of the ATM. In the video, 
Luna still was wearing his tie. But at 2.37 a.m., Jonathan's car entered the New Jersey Turnpike via Route 130 in Florence, New Jersey. Ten minutes later, the car entered the Pennsylvania Turnpike. And I have to stop here for a second because it's important to point out, like you, Mike, in some of those areas where Roy Grucar was navigating, this is an area that's very close to me. And it's, it's very unusual, this route that he would take. If the person driving, whether it was Jonathan Lunar or whoever, wanted to go to Lancaster, they could have made a straight beeline up instead of cutting over through Delaware into Pennsylvania, crossing over into New Jersey, and then back into Pennsylvania. The area of Florence, New Jersey, where the turnpike was entered, there's nothing there. There's no town. It's very rural. So I almost wonder if they made a mistake and came into New Jersey and had to turn around and get back over to the Pennsylvania Turnpike. But it's it's a very strange set of movements. To me, it seems like someone is either wandering or driving aimlessly, no real plan, uh, or they're just going very far out of their way, uh, driving in South Jersey to turn around just to head west to Lancaster, Pennsylvania. So unless Jonathan or whoever was driving had to pick up someone or pick up something here in South Jersey, I can't figure out why they drove into New Jersey at all. It's just very much out of the way. At 3.20 a.m., Jonathan's debit card was used at the Sunoco gas station in the King of Prussia service plaza in King of Prussia, Pennsylvania. At 4.04 a.m., Jonathan's Honda exited at the Pennsylvania Reading Interchange. Police later said the ticket had a spot of Jonathan's blood on it. At 5.30 a.m., Jonathan's body was found at the Well Drilling Company property off Dry Tavern Road in the town of Denver in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. The drilling company is only about two and a half miles from the interchange. So what happened between 4.04 a.m. and 5.30 a.m. is unknown. And Morph, like you said, the entire established route troubled investigators, just like it troubled you, a direct route from Baltimore to Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. It's about a hundred miles. That's less than a two hour drive. The route that Jonathan's car traveled covered 135 miles and would have taken about two and a half hours. So whoever was driving that car, whether it was Jonathan or someone else, they could have driven from Baltimore to Lancaster in pretty much a straight shot on only three highways, I-83, I-95, and U.S. 30 West. And when I map this out, I think that the travel may have taken as much as four hours. When you plug in all those locations where Jonathan Luna's car traveled, uh, it just doesn't make sense. Investigators questioned people at gas stations along the route to see if anyone recognized Jonathan's picture, but no one did. The Sunoco gas station's surveillance camera failed to record the transaction clearly. According to investigators, it is unclear if investigators check surveillance cameras around the area of Jonathan's workplace and at the various toll booths. Authorities learned that Jonathan Luna had traveled to Lancaster County, Pennsylvania several times in the months before his death, but didn't know of any work-related business that would have taken him there. 
Two months after Jonathan's death, investigators reported finding the murder weapon, Jonathan's penknife, near a large rock where his body was found. This was an area that was previously searched by FBI agents, U.S. Marshals, and 100 cadets from the State Police Academy. In March 2004, investigators announced a $100,000 reward and said they were actively pursuing three theories in Jonathan Luna's death. One, that he was killed by someone he knew. One, that he was killed by a stranger who picked him at random. And then the third was that he took his own life. And when you talk about that last theory, that Jonathan Luna took his own life, more no one in his family, no one that knew him believed that was possible, right? The idea that he stabbed himself 36 times with his own pen knife seemed ludicrous. And I think Lancaster County officials agree. They continued to investigate his death as a likely homicide. But then something changed. By the second anniversary of Jonathan's death, the FBI labeled it suicide. And they tried to get coroner Barry Wolp's successor, a guy by the name of Gary Kirchner, to change the manner of death to suicide, but he refused. Despite this, the FBI stuck with the theory that Jonathan Luna took his own life. The FBI's suicide theory centered around $36,000 in evidence from a bank robbery case Jonathan was prosecuting that conveniently went missing shortly before Jonathan's death. Jonathan was set to take a lie detector test as part of the investigation, but postponed taking it at least once due to his heavy workload. Investigators discovered that he came into possession of more than $10,000 cash shortly after the evidence money went missing, but investigators never determined how Jonathan acquired the money. Others who had access to the missing money took polygraph tests. One of Jonathan's fellow prosecutors said that Jonathan was willing to take a polygraph, and she went on to say that she didn't believe he stole the money. And, and obviously, neither did Jonathan's friends and family. The FBI was never able to prove that Jonathan Luna had anything to do with the missing money. A short time later, a report by the Department of Justice Inspector General's office detailed what was quoted as credible evidence of serious misconduct by the FBI agents investigating Jonathan's death. But they added that it was serious misconduct, but not to the point where it compromised their investigation. According to multiple sources, two agents questioned a fellow female agent about rumors that she and Jonathan were having an affair. She later filed an internal complaint charging that the FBI's then-acting special agent in charge of the Baltimore Division ordered two agents to interrogate her and approved an illegal search of her computer. This interrogation did not include agents assigned to investigate Jonathan's death. The female agent denied the affair and said her relationship with Jonathan was strictly professional. Ultimately, it was decided that the special agent in charge, as well as the two agents, didn't do anything wrong in their interrogation of the female agent. In 2004, author Bill Kiesling wrote a book titled 
The Midnight Ride of Jonathan Luna. Two years later, in a new edition of the book, Kiesling said that Kim McLeod, the mortician who prepared Jonathan Luna's body for viewing, counted 32, not 36 stab wounds. The autopsy stated Jonathan was stabbed 36 times in the neck and chest area, but Kim told Kiesling that Jonathan also had stab wounds in the middle of his back and around and below his shoulder blades. She also said his hands had been shredded by deep cuts between the fingers and bone-deep slashes to the front and back of the hands. This suggested that Jonathan may have defended himself against the blows. According to Kim, the wounds to Jonathan's hands were so severe that she had to put gloves on his hands for the viewing. This fact had previously been mentioned by a friend of Jonathan's, who said that when he saw Jonathan at the funeral home, he was wearing gloves. Kim McLeod went on to say that Jonathan's neck had been slit and his scrotum cut, but the cut wasn't a clean one. So more the facts provided by Kim McLeod seem to support homicide, right? Those things don't sound like something that would come from someone trying to take their own life. The defensive wounds on the hands, the stab wounds to the back, the shoulder blades. Seems to me like those would be made by another person. But Dr. Gary Kirchner had a response to Kim's claims. He said that she is, quote, describing probably accurately the wounds on the body. She is describing autopsy wounds as well as inflicted wounds. Those linear wounds are the medical examiner looking under bruises for the depth of the wounds. They were not inflicted pre-death. Kirchner went on to say that he was reasonably certain that the cut to the scrotum was done during the autopsy. It's interesting because even if this examiner is right, it still doesn't explain the severe damage to his hands that look like self-defense wounds. Yeah, I think he does a good job of maybe you know casting some doubt on the cut to the scrotum and maybe some of the, the other wounds, but... As far as I know, he didn't address all of these injuries to Jonathan's hands. I still think that is very important to this case. It was around the end of 2005 when a lot of people started to wonder about a possible connection between Ray Ricard's disappearance months earlier and Jonathan Luna's murder in 2003. Both were prosecutors and both were involved in heroin cases and both cases centered in counties in central Pennsylvania. On March 31st, two weeks before Ray Ricard vanished, he and State Attorney General Tom Corbett announced the largest heroin bust in Center County history. But authorities today say the two cases are not related, and there isn't any evidence to support a link. While the FBI continues to say that Jonathan Luna took his own life, more, I think it's clear there are too many things that seem to cast doubt on their theory. For one thing, Jonathan needed his glasses to drive. He would have taken them with him. He would not have been able to see well enough without them, especially at night, to make that type of drive. And we talked about his cell phone. And I think you add those two together, both of those items being left in his office suggests that he either left in a hurry or he was forced to leave. There's also the spot of his blood found on the toll ticket that suggested he was already injured 
when he went through that toll booth, the considerable amount of blood found in the backseat of his Honda points to the fact that obviously at some point he was in the backseat at the point where some of these blows, if not all of these blows were inflicted. It does raise the question, did Jonathan drive his own car that night or was someone else driving and had him captive in his backseat? While many questions remain in Jonathan's death, the case is pretty much cold. People associated with the case have refused to discuss it with the media, and some believe Jonathan's case will never be solved. Angela Hopkins Luna and her two children moved out of the Elkridge home after Jonathan's death. She's still working as a doctor in Maryland. Whether or not Ragnarkar and Jonathan Luna's cases are connected is uncertain, but both deserve justice and their families deserve answers. And I think, Morph, as we wrap up these cases, we have to talk about some of the strange details and some of the clues in both. Well, the, the first thing that jumps out to me in, in Ray Ricardo's case is the the laptop searches about how to destroy a laptop in water. And then, lo and behold, when he disappears, his laptop is found in water. That doesn't seem uh, like a coincidence, just to me personally. And I, I wonder if he was planning some kind of exit, whether it was to go live a new life. It, it just doesn't seem like a coincidence that that search would be found on his computer and then his laptop would be discarded in the water. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you there. I mean, why search for that unless you have something on that hard drive that you're hoping to erase completely? We know it's very hard to erase a hard drive. I shouldn't say that. It's not that hard. You need to crush it. You need to destroy it. You know, running some software to erase things off doesn't really work. There are people that can go in and recover that information. The thing to me is, what would that be? What would be on your laptop, on the hard drive that you would never want anyone else to see, I don't know. And I don't think anybody else does either. And uh, another thing that jumps out to me about Ray's case is the fact that his brother went missing before ultimately being found dead. It just seems too bizarre. Like it's the odds of that would be, you know, really low to have something like that happen twice to, to, to a set of brothers. To me, the thing that really stands out about this case is both of these guys were prosecutors and tough job. We know it's also a job where you are going to make a ton of enemies. You are literally day in and day out putting people away. Now, hopefully there are people that deserve it. They did bad things. They should go to jail. They should go to prison. They should serve their time. But there are a lot of people that are going to have a tremendous amount of animosity towards the person that is putting them behind bars. And just like in Ray Krakara's case and Jonathan Luna's case, there's a number of questionable things. He leaves his phone and his glasses, which we know he needs his glasses to drive. And then he takes this wild, bizarre path to ultimately get to Lancaster and goes very far out of his way to get there. That just seems very bizarre. And then I think you add on top of that, the missing money. 
right? So you have Ray Gricar who has apparently something on his laptop that he never wants anyone to see. You've got the question of whether or not Jonathan Luna was involved in this missing money. Most people don't believe he was, but the question's out there. You know, you, you have to factor both of these things in when you're talking about their deaths. The one thing I don't know is the proximity. You know, what does that have to do with the two cases? I don't know if it has anything to do with them. What do you think? Yeah, they were both found dead in quiet, more rural areas of Pennsylvania, about 100 miles apart. And to me, that's where I I just don't see the connection relating to the geography. What I think is these are definitely two separate cases. I don't think they have anything to do with one another, except for the fact that they both bodies were found in rural areas of Pennsylvania. I think more than likely, both of these have something to do with the professions that you know these men were in. Uh, I will say this, that I think specifically in Ray Ricard's case, there's someone that might have some answers. And that's the woman that he was seen with at the antique store just before he went missing. If he was talking to her, she might have some insight as to what you know what they were talking about. Did he know her? Was she a random shopper? But at least she might be able to give investigators some kind of idea of what was happening. But she's never been identified. Well, and, and to me, that goes back to what was on that laptop. It doesn't have to be criminal, right? It could be, and I don't want to cast aspersions on this guy, but it could be evidence of infidelity. And, you know, he's trying to get rid of it. And maybe that woman is, like you said, a part of that. But in all the cases that we do, Morph, there is someone, at least one person, if not multiple people, that know what happened. The key is, will they ever come forward or will police ever figure out who they are so that they can find a way to extract that information? That's the key. You know, whether these cases are, are connected or not, they're both very bizarre in their own rights. Thanks goes out to Debbie Buck at TrueCrimeDiva.com for writing and research assistance in this episode. If you love the show, please take a minute, go out, give us a five-star rating, tell your friends about criminology. Word of mouth goes a long way in helping the podcast. If you're active on social media, we'd love to hear from you. We're on Twitter with the handle at Criminology Pod. You can also find us on Facebook by searching for Criminology Podcast or by joining our Facebook discussion group, which is Criminology Podcast Discussion and Fans. All right, Morph, that is it for episode 100. It's a big milestone in the anthology that is criminology. It's kind of tough to say those two words side by side. And I'm not even sure that I used them correctly. But What I do know is we've put out a hundred episodes and I'm very proud of what you and I have done. And I'm looking forward to the next hundred. Yeah, definitely. You know, like I always say, if people like what we do and they keep listening, we will keep putting it out there. Morph and I will be back with all of you next Saturday night with an all new episode of Criminology. So for Mike and Morph, we'll talk to you next week. Take care, everyone.